0: 5 pages of notes instead of the normal 4. So uh hunk- hunker down. Hunker down. <laughs> we'll see. I don't know how long and it's going to take. Narrow down the hymn selection and I know, that's right. So, uh, that's right. Just be prepared to stay till <laughs> noon. Today. Uh, well, good morning. All right. Uh, sermon preparation is kind of a weird thing. Um, kind of go into uh, Go into the week, not exactly knowing what's going to what's going to surface, and uh, go into the text, not exactly knowing uh, what's going to surface. There's a there's a ton of study and a ton of research uh, that goes into it. You should have seen my desk earlier this week. There's one day where I was really hard into into the research, and I had I had commentaries laid out, and I had about four translations all over my desk, and I had I had these kind of biblical dictionaries that I was looking at Hebrew words, and it was. It was a mess. My, my office was, was a mess in, in the best possible way. Uh, and, and that typically happens. Something like that typically happens each week. But uh, that's not how this sermon began. That's not how the sermon began, and that's not how most of my sermons begin. It started more the gut feeling. Uh, and, and right now we're in the we're in the lectionary, uh, so uh, we're, 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 I'm preaching through the lectionary, which means there's four passages every week that I could choose from. So I kind of I, I scan them all and and start to kind of read through them and pray through them and see what what stands out. But that's really kind of how it how it starts. Is is uh, it, it kind of started with this gut feeling, like like I had a few thoughts and then I had a few more thoughts and then I had a few more thoughts. Uh, and uh, and all the passages this week are great. In fact, the the three that. Uh, I'm not preaching from this morning are probably better than the one that I am preaching from this morning. There, there are these beautiful passages about calling, like the the Here I Am, uh, the Here I Am, Lord uh, song was chosen because uh, one of the passages is that famous Isaiah six passage where where the the angel touches Isaiah's lips with the coal and 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 he kind of welcomes God's call in his life and and there's the calling of the disciples which is beautiful and, and there's this First Corinthians fifteen passage about the resurrection. There's these fantastic passages in the lectionary this morning, and then one obscure psalm, and for some reason, uh, I found myself being drawn to this psalm, and, uh, and some thoughts came, and some more thoughts came, uh, and something just sort of clicked, and... Uh, and so I'm going to preach through this psalm. It's a, it, it is a really great psalm, uh, and one that I could probably reread this next week and preach an entirely different sermon on. Uh, but this time, as I slowly read this song of David, uh, I had this idea, and the idea kept showing up through each and every verse of the psalm. So, so I want to share with you this morning... Uh, it is probably, it's not the only faithful way to read this psalm, but I, I do think it's one faithful way of reading this, and I find it to be a compelling way to read this psalm. So, so here's the basic idea this morning, kind of the basic thesis uh, this morning, is that to worship God and to follow Jesus is to be in stark contrast with the patterns and the ways of the world. And, uh, and I know I preach about some of those, those, this theme. I preach about this theme from time to time. But I think it's one that I, I need to continue to be reminded of because uh, our time here together on a Sunday morning is only a few hours long at most. And then we go into the world. Uh, we go back to our jobs. We go back to our friends. We go back to our family. And, and we don't have this kind of safe Uh, sanctuary of a place uh, all week long. And I think that I need to be encouraged often that uh, the ways of the world shouldn't be seeping into my system. That the way of God is different than that, and I need to be living as if the way of God is different than the way of the world. Uh, Maybe you could say it differently. Uh, You could say it this way. To worship our big G God is to stand diametrically opposed to all the little G gods that vie for our attention and clamor for our worship. There are little g-gods, and we're going to explore that in the text this morning. There are little g-gods that bombard us all week long, right? Things that, that want our worship, that want us to make it a priority as opposed to making the one true God our priority. And I think that this little eight-verse psalm that we're about to explore is, is really provocative, revolutionary, and countercultural in that it's a helpful reminder that the way of God has almost nothing to do with the way of the world, so let's dive in. Psalm 138. Psalm 138. If you want to follow along. Uh, so I'm just going gonna, gonna to pick my way through this one verse at a time. So, uh, so we'll start at the beginning and, and we'll get through the whole thing. Verse 1. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods I sing your praise. That seems pretty common sense, right? Like nothing to disagree with there. It's, it's pretty obvious. Of course, we give our thanks to God with our whole heart. He's God, right? Of course. Of course we would do that. Of course God gets all of our praise. But when I think about it, how often do I actually live like that? Uh, in reality, it never quite works that way. A million other little gods are constantly fighting for our attention with unending ferocity. They're, they want our attention. They want our worship. They, they want us to give them our allegiance. Uh, and yet, so we're, we're trying to say, oh, Lord, I give you my whole heart, uh, the Hebrew word for gods here, this this uh, lowercase gods word here, is it, kind of complex. Uh, there, there's a lot of ways to think about these little g gods in our lives. We, we may think about it as pagan gods, which is, which is one way to think about it. Uh, gods that really hold no power or authority, yet really want that power and authority in, in our lives. Uh, it, it's anything that seeks out and too often gets our worship. We're not just talking about gold statues of Baal. We're not talking about uh, creating statues uh, uh, to Artemis of the Ephesians. This could be a million different things that are seeking out and too often getting our worship. It's any person characterized by greatness or power, a mighty one, a great one, a judge. These gods might take on a ton of different forms for us. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's attention and notoriety. Maybe it's power. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe that God for us is a certain political party or a certain politician, a certain way of thinking about politics. Maybe it's, maybe it's a celebrity. Maybe it's a substance that has become a God in our lives or a habit for us that we can't kick, that we continue to give our worship to. Maybe it's even a good activity that went too far, like sports fandom or an excessive hobby. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe there are things that aren't categorically bad, and yet they've become kind of godlike in our lives. They're vying for our attention in a way that's unhelpful. Maybe it's body image. Maybe it's our career. Uh, and our desire to climb the corporate ladder. I, I don't know what it is, but all sorts of things clamor for our attention and try to steal our allegiance away from the one true God. So, so to say this verse, to say verse one here, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart, is incredibly radical. That's a, I, I know it sounds so obvious. I, I know it sounds kind of, kind of benign, but it is is—it is not. Uh, it is so radical. It's crazy. It's a bold, defiant move to say that no other little gods uh, uh, will have priority in our lives uh, over the one true God. That is so beautiful and so hard and so radical. There, there's... It's crazy. There's a really interesting thing happening in this verse that's worth mentioning as well. It has to do with this phrase, before the gods, I sing your praise. The way that that phrase is supposed to be read in Hebrew is really similar to how we would use the phrase, in your face. Uh, that's, the way it, that's the way it kind of reads in Hebrew and that's the way that we would say it in, our, in like an English contemporary idiom uh, is that we're doing this all in the face of the gods. We're doing it in their face. It's, it's like saying, I, I didn't just offer God praise all by myself in the privacy of my own space. I did it directly in the face of all the other gods that keep trying to claim their stake in my life. I, how awesome is that? How defiant is that? How bold is that? That, that we're not just saying, uh, yeah, God, I want you to have a, a bit of my life. Nope. I'm saying, I want you to have my whole heart. And we do it directly in the face of everyone else, every other God that is vying for our attention and our worship. That's, it's crazy defiant. Uh, to put God above all else is so provocative, revolutionary, and countercultural. Verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So we're committing to being sold out to God and his way, which might look like bowing down in worship. It might look like flinging ourselves into the dust, the floor of God's dwelling, which... Is weird, right? We're talking about how countercultural and weird it is to follow God and to give God our ultimate praise. And this sounds pretty weird—to fling ourselves into the dust, to lay prostrate at God's feet—is uh, weird and countercultural enough uh, to be so totally sold out to God that we don't care how foolish we might look is strange. But but look at why we might do that in the text. Why we would praise God's name. We would do it because of his love and his faithfulness. Which is most certainly different than our culture, right? Where we don't see a whole lot of love and faithfulness, love is about sacrifice and servanthood, while the world is too often about getting and taking and having love is about patience and kindness, while the world is too often about get what I want about getting what I want now by whatever means necessary. faithfulness is about commitment and longevity over the long term while the world is too often about what have you done for me lately uh, we 're in stark contrast here. The ways of the world are not the ways of God. So when we throw ourselves at God's feet in worship, because of his great love and faithfulness, we are reminding ourselves and declaring to the world that there is a better way. You don't have to do it that way. You don't have to, 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 to live that other way. There is a different new way, a way of love and faithfulness in a world of violence, anger, and infidelity. There's a different way. Then verse 2 continues. For you have exalted your name and your word above everything. You have exalted your name and your word above everything. In a world clamoring for our attention, grasping for power and fame, desperate for us to glance their way. In a world ruled by whoever can get the most money, The most votes, the most fans, the most Twitter followers, the most employees, the most promotions, or the most notoriety. In a world where we desperately and pridefully glorify and exalt ourselves, and we're actually commended to do so, God is the one who is actually exalted. He is the one who is actually on the top of the ladder. God is the holy, glorified, exalted, great one in name and in word, and nothing can hold a candle to his greatness. Nothing, right? I'll, I'll probably be watching the Grammys like everyone else tonight. We are a people who revel uh, in celebrity. We revel uh, in in. Uh, in in uh, people being high and mighty and famous and yet we are worshipping a God who is uh, the greatest he is at the top of the ladder and nothing can compare to him nothing holds a candle to his greatness and everything that tries to vie for godlike status ultimately comes up short and leaves us dreadfully disappointed verse 3 on the day I called you, you answered me, and you increased my strength of soul. On the day I called, you answered me. You increased my strength of soul. Unlike all of these other lowercase g gods that keep clamoring for our attention, whatever it is, money, power, fame, spectacle, uh, uh, whatever it is that keeps trying to draw us away, sinfulness, all sorts of things, uh, Our God will never fail us. Our God hears us, answers us, and actually does something fulfilling and satisfying in our lives. I think the story is that all of these other lowercase g gods will let us down right? We've known that to be true. We've known that throughout our lives, that when we allow something else to to gain our attention over the one true God, it never goes well. None of these other gods that seduce us with their allure of satisfaction, fulfillment, and joy will ever actually deliver on their promises. We, We know that to be true. Drugs, Alcohol, sex, pornography, greed, power, career, paycheck, desire for more stuff, none of it will fulfill us. All of it will leave us dissatisfied. All of it will leave us feeling uh, lacking of joy in the end. Uh, None of that will fulfill us and meet our needs. None of that will strengthen our soul. So the invitation is to leave those gods behind. I want to be done with that, God. That thing that keeps dragging me back in to its seductive allure, with its seductive allure, I want to be rid of that. I want to be gone from that. I'm tired of trusting something else that is not you to ultimately fulfill me and give me satisfaction and joy in life. I'm done. I'm done with that. The calling is to rid ourselves of our sinful idolatry to a million unhelpful choices that seductively call out to us because they'll all leave us empty and unsatisfied. None of those temptations will ever satisfy our ultimate, ultimate needs. Only God will. Only God will. The Hebrew here literally reads, On that day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Only God will do that. Nothing else. No other substance, no other person, no other activity or hobby or job, nothing else will do that. Only God answers when we cry out and makes us bold with strength in our soul. And that's what we're ultimately looking for. But we tend to look for it in all the wrong places when only God can provide for us fully. So now... If all that's true, if all the first three verses are true, then, of course, verses 4 and 5 would come next in response to this great adamant declaration of God's sovereignty over and above all the other gods of our own making. Verses 4 and 5 make total sense. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Uh, Let's face it. Every king of this world, uh, every God that is clamoring for our attention, whether now or later, no matter how powerful they think they are, will eventually have to own up to their ultimate lack of power, control, and authority in this world. Everyone, without fail, no leader is perfect. All worldly leadership ultimately fall short of God's perfect leadership. So all worldly leaders must humble themselves, praise the Lord, and sing of their greatness. Whether they want to or not, they must. Ultimately, they must. Everyone gets humbled at some point. Sometimes uh, it's the good kind of being humble. It's humility. It's faithful humility and sometimes it's the bad kind it looks like failure and humiliation but every leader eventually realizes their place in the universe and must allow god to actually occupy the throne they must all of all of these other gods will eventually bow at the feet of jesus so how dare we give them power now there's a, uh, there's a beautiful paraphrase of this whole psalm uh, by this, uh, this author named Jim Taylor, and I love how he sums up these two verses here, verses 4 and 5. He says it this way, a very loose paraphrase. He says, foxes may lord it over the chicken coop, and squirrels over the sparrow's nest, but no creatures challenge the eagle's rule. They cower before the eagle's eye and ruthless claws. As the eagle soars above the field, mice uh, above the field, mice. So do you, Lord, rise above us, mortals? Be a bit loose paraphrase, but I think we get the point. Nothing else holds a candle to the greatness of God, and so I'd say the invitation here is to make sure that we are faithfully humbling ourselves now in praise and adoration of the only true God and King, rather than one day being caught up in failure and humiliation, having made everything else our God and King. Uh, if, if everything will bow at the feet of Jesus in, in the final day, then why not start doing it now and not allow anything else to take priority in our lives? And then the psalm, Gets back to being really countercultural again. Verse 6 For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he perceives from far away. One commentator says says this, verse 6 articulates the topsy-turvy values that prevail in the reign of God. And I think that's what I'm trying to say overall in the whole sermon, right? Uh, There's a different way of operating in the kingdom or the reign of God. And this verse especially highlights that. This God isn't like the gods and the powers of the world. This God doesn't just think of himself. This God doesn't use his lofty status as a barrier from the lowly. This God actually cares for the lowly. This God actually loves the lowly. He regards them. He looks upon them. He sees them. He considers them. He becomes visible to them. He appears to them. He shows up for them. The lowly are loved and cared for in God's kingdom, which, unfortunately, is actually a pretty radical countercultural position to take. Man, we don't do a very good job of caring for the lowly. We don't, we don't do a very good job of loving the least of these. Uh, now, some of us do at times. We get it right from time to time. And many of you are fantastic at caring for the poor and the marginalized, and I'm really proud to call you my friends. But as a culture, and, and me individually far too often, we aren't very loving and generous toward those on the outskirts of our society. For example... Uh, in the newspaper this week, if you're a newspaper reading kind of person, uh, there were two stories that kind of stand in stark contrast. On Wednesday, uh, in the paper, there was a story about the average home price in Bozeman. Did you read that story? So, so right now, the average home price in Bozeman is $375,000. $375,000. $375,000 average, average home price. That's up from $331,000 in 2017. So that's, pretty, that's a pretty drastic jump, right? I mean, which is fantastic news for homeowners, right? like, yeah, sweet. That's so, man, that's so good for me, right? That is, gosh, this is such good news for me. Uh, then fast forward to Friday uh, in the paper, and there was a story about the warming center, and how the warming center right now is $62,000 short of being able to stay open for the whole season, uh, which is terrible news for the lowly, right? And, and a travesty uh, for a community that can obviously afford or chooses to spend tons of money on their own housing and yet can't afford to, to spend a little, house, a little money on housing for the least of these, the kind of people that God cares about, the kind of people that the Psalms talk about, the kind of people that Jesus preaches and and teaches about all the time. Uh, I don't know what really what to do with those two stories, but I just think that it's kind of interesting that they stand uh, uh, together, and yet they're they're in in opposition. There's there's no real good way to reconcile those two articles, other than just to say that I I don't think that we're doing a good enough job at at caring for people who Jesus seems to care for and that David writes about here in the Psalms, that, that God loves. God cares for the lowly, and I love that, and yet I need to do better at that. If God cares for them, why don't I? I've, I, find, I find money for my mortgage, but but I don't I haven't donated to the warming center this year. So maybe that, maybe that needs to change. Oh, that we would all, myself included, take encouragement and direction from God and double down our efforts at caring for the poor, the marginalized, the outcast, the, the out, uh, those on the outskirts uh, of, of our society, what, what this translation calls the lowly. Uh, and then uh, verses 7 and 8 become a bit of a summary Uh, for the whole psalm. So we'll finish it out here. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve me against the wrath of my enemies. You stretch out your hand, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. This world will never take it easy on us. As one commentary says, those who relinquish self sufficiency and commit themselves to the reign of God will undoubtedly experience trouble and have enemies. It's coming. When we choose to not just think of ourselves and to submit ourselves to a new sort of kingdom, a new sort of world, a new sort of commonwealth, a new sort of reign, God's reign, we will undoubtedly experience trouble and have enemies. We will feel the constant tug back and forth between the world's values and God's values. We will feel, uh, as Wass says, like resident aliens, like, like we live here and yet we don't. We will constantly feel this kind of tension that this is my world and yet it's not, and and it needs to look differently. It needs to look more like God's world. We live in the not quite yetness of God's kingdom, where little g gods will constantly vie for our allegiance and our attention. But through it all, God will protect us. He will deliver us, and He will fulfill His purpose for us. In the end, David prays that God wouldn't forsake us or abandon us, which is. It's a really interesting word choice here. Uh, forsake in the Hebrew uh, means to let fall or, or to drop. So when he says, do not forsake the work of your hands, he's saying, don't, don't let something fall, don't let something drop, which is really interesting because David has just talked about God's hands three different times in this section. He, he said, stretch out your hand. He said, your right hand delivers me. And now he's saying, do not forsake the work of your hands. It seems like David is concerned that God's going to drop the ball. If forsake means to drop. Uh, I think that David is kind of concerned about God dropping the ball because everything else he has tried has done that. Everything else he's tried uh, has failed for him. No level of power ever fulfilled his life. No number of women ever satisfied him. No amount of money had ever met his need. Heck, he wasn't even content with the presence of God in the tabernacle. He needed a temple. Uh, nothing, nothing ever fulfilled David uh, That in the world. Every little God in his life had let him down, but God won't. God will be with us. He will be faithful. He is to be trusted. God won't drop the ball. He won't fail, fail us. So, would we leave here today celebrating God's goodness and sovereignty and interest in our lives? Would we leave here today reminded that all the other little gods we make for ourselves will always let us down and never leave us fulfilled and satisfied? Would we leave here today reminded that our God loves us and cares for us and protects us and delivers us. Would we leave here today encouraged that our God sees and sides with the lowly? Would we leave here today entrusting our God to continue his faithfulness to us, even in our times of trouble? And would we leave here today celebrating that we worship a provocative, revolutionary, countercultural God? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are worthy of being praised. I thank you that you have a whole different way of doing life, of of working with us, that you care for us, you don't just take from us, that you selflessly give of yourself in, in a world where the other gods we know are selfish and want to take from us. Help us to give you our first priority Help us to trust you in our moments of difficulty, knowing that you will be with us. Uh, Help us to side with the lowly because you do. Help us to live into your provocative, revolutionary, countercultural reign and rule. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.